Thank you, and once again, good day to students and teachers of the Word of God. We don't know where this broadcast is reaching you or where it is being broadcast from. These broadcasts are sent out and put on the airwaves by interested Christians and by churches who are concerned about getting the Word of God out. We never make any uh, pitch for uh, support in these broadcasts. We send out no newsletter, no prayer letter, no letters for support, but operate simply by faith. And these broadcasts will be sponsored by Christians who love the Word of God and are concerned about the uh, propagation of the Word of God. For this cause, we never make any appeal for funds in these broadcasts and leave these matters simply up to the Lord and spend our entire time dealing with the Word of God. On our theological seminar for today, we're dealing with the great doctrine of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the appropriate subjects in dealing with Christology, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we still have yet to deal with the ascension of Christ, the intercessory work of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and the results of his soon return. Now, the doctrine of the resurrection is the foundation doctrine of the New Testament. The resurrection is mentioned 104 times in the New Testament. Christianity is the only religion with a living originator. Buddha is dead, Brahma is dead, Muhammad is dead, Karl Marx is dead. There isn't anybody that have found a religion, of course communism is a religion, who is not dead and buried, and their tomb can be located, and people can produce their bones. That isn't all. If you had the bones of Karl Marx, you could still be a good communist. If you had the bones of Muhammad, you still could be a good Mohammedan. If you had the bones of Brahma, you could still be a good Brahmist or a Hindu. If you had the bones of Buddha, you could still be a good Buddhist. But if you had one finger bone of Jesus Christ, you could not be a good Christian, because this would make us liars, as Paul said, if we preach that Christ rose from the dead when he did not rise from the dead. The boast and glory of Christianity is the empty tomb. Jesus is risen. And the best news this world ever had, it got from a graveyard. For the angel said, He is not here, he is risen. On the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, Paul says, we are all of, of all men most miserable, we're yet in our sin, we're lost, we're liars and false witnesses of God, saying that God raised Christ from the dead. This would make us liars if he didn't raise him from the dead. Jesus said he would die and rise again from the dead on the third day, Matthew 16, 21. And if the resurrection is true, then Jesus is indeed the Son of God, and this has nothing to do with the pagan mythology or the mystery religions of Rome and Greece or all the nonsense about Bacchus and Orpheus and Hades and the underworld and Adonais coming up and all that unmitigated baloney and pure unadulterated tripe. We're dealing here with a case where a man has 500 witnesses, 500 witnesses that he rose from the dead, and the 500 witnesses ate and drank with him and handled his body. This, then, is the miracle in which all of the miracles stand or fall, and if this, the greatest of miracles, is true, then it is very easy to believe all the rest. Those of us who met Jesus Christ and encountered him as our personal Savior have no problem about believing in the resurrection at all. We know him as a personal Savior who has dealt with us personally about personal matters, and to this day I have a big sign in my trunk which I put through the air lane uh, waves, through the air terminals up and down this country on the air waves, which says, God is not dead, I talked with him this morning. If your God is dead, condolences, tough apples, may I recommend a God that is not dead, may I recommend a God who became incarnate and suffered and died and rose from the dead. 
My suitcase goes on United Airways, Airlines, Braniff Airlines, Southern Airlines, Eastern Airlines, National Airlines, TWA, Great Lakes, Allegheny, Lake Central, North Central, Piedmont, Mohawk, Trans-Texas, Trans-Arkansas, Delta, and points north, south, east, and west. It says, God is not dead. I talked with him this morning. Now, evidence of the resurrection. First of all, the empty tomb. The angel said, He is not here. He is risen. As he said, Come and see the place where the Lord lay. And they entered in, Luke 24, 3, and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. We have the testimony of angels. In Matthew 28, 46, we read, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. We have the people who talked to him after the resurrection. Peter, Mary, Cleopas, and Thomas. Jesus Christ ate and drank, showed his wounds to friends after the resurrection in Luke chapter 24, and he was seen by 500 who saw him at once, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 6. He appeared to Stephen at his martyrdom, Acts chapter 7, verse 56. He appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9, verse 5. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. We also have evidence by the testimony of millions who have proved to him to be a living Savior. Or as Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says in the authorized version, by many infallible proofs. Now, these many infallible proofs have been reduced to simply many proofs in the new corrupt versions, such as the new ASV and the international version and other corruptions of the truth. But the correct text says many infallible proofs. You will find this verse has also been meddled with in the so-called King James II Bible, and this meddling with the text only marks the entrance of the Laodicean church. It was the Philadelphia church period that kept the Word of God, and of all the churches, the Philadelphia church was the only one that was said to have kept the Word. So if you want the right text, you get it by an English Reformation Bible in the universal language of the world, English, by many infallible proofs. Once upon a time, two lawyers were asked to investigate these matters of the resurrection, and they didn't believe that Christ had risen from the dead, and a preacher challenged them to study, first of all, the uh, record in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of the resurrection, and secondly, the conversion of Paul. And these two lawyers, by the time they'd studied these two matters for about three months, avoided each other in the street, and finally when they met again and accused each other of having avoided each other, uh, they finally confessed that both of them had gotten convicted in their studies and had received the Lord Jesus Christ the Savior, and both of them were Christians. The evidence for the resurrection will hold up in any court in this country. The laws of jurisprudence of the United States teach that if eyewitnesses have given a testimony and agreed in their testimony, and that testimony has been reduced to writing, and no incontrovertible evidence or no final evidence has been produced, to overthrow the written testimony, the written testimony stands and cannot be disannulled or abrogated. There has never been any conclusive evidence produced since the resurrection of Christ that he did not rise from the dead. Therefore, it stands in the legal courts in the United States that Christ rose from the dead. Now, there are various explanations of Christ's resurrection that are revived from time to time. The most famous of these is the so-called swoon theory which uh, dates back to the second and third century. The fraud theory, the myth theory, and the ghost theory, and this and that, go clear back to the first and second century after the time of Christ, 
and yet they're occasionally revived by the Associated Press as being news stories. First of all, we have the fraud theory. In the fraud theory, it is thought the whole story was a hoax, it was a deliberate imposture. History and the Scripture flat deny such a ridiculous theory, however. You can't make a hoax, a gigantic hoax out of that thing, a deliberate imposture, in view of what it produced. When did an imposture and a hoax like that ever produce the lives of 15 to 20 million sainted people, at least a million of whom were willing to die for their faith? They were dying for a hoax, were they? They were dying for a deliberate imposture? Well, what gave them the strength to endure the rack and the fire and the tongs and the scourge and the wheel and the pulley and the pinchers if it was just an hallucination? The thing was a fraud. It was a hoax, was it? How do you explain the deathbed testimonies of over four million people who went out joyously shouting the victory and praising God when they were in the utmost agony and going through the doors of death? Why, you don't read about atheists dying like that or agnostics or even spiritists. Why not even the advocates of TM go out like that? You never read anywhere uh, in literature where people who practice yoga and Hinduism and Buddhism went out with victorious testimonies. Now, I grant somewhere you may have read somewhere that when they went out they talked about uh, living somewhere in the great beyond and going beyond the beyond to some state where if they kept on they might get beyond where they were when they got beyond where they were. But you don't find anything like, I fought a good fight, I finished the course. Henceforth there laid it for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me in that day. You don't find anything like, hallelujah, glory to God, open up ye golden gates and let my car go through. You don't find anything like, uh, satisfied, satisfied, I shall be satisfied, satisfied. Nothing like that. If the resurrection was a fraud and was a hoax, it was the most remarkable hoax and fraud ever perpetrated on the human race, because it produced what atheism, science, religion, and education could not produce. Next we have the so-called swoon theory, the theory that Jesus only fainted, for the soldiers did not kill him, and the cool tomb and the spices caused him to revive and come back to life. Isn't that something? Especially in view of the fact that the spices used for embalming were poisonous and would have killed him. And if Jesus would almost whip with an inch of his life, like the Bible says, how do you suppose he had enough strength when he got out of his wound to push the stone back? Rather remarkable, don't you think, how stupid some scientists and educators can be? We have the hallucination theory that the disciples wanted to see Jesus so badly, and they thought he would rise from the dead so badly, that their imagination, they imagined they saw him. Well, that's rather ridiculous. The scriptures tell us the disciples were steeped in unbelief, and would scarcely believe after seeing him, and Thomas wouldn't believe without touching him, and after he rose from the dead, they were up in an upper room with the doors locked because of the fear of the Jews. They had no idea he'd risen from the dead. My, what an hallucination. They imagined they saw him. I suppose they imagined they touched him, did they? I suppose they imagined that he ate and drank with them, did they? That's quite an imagination you have there for 500 people, wouldn't you say? They only imagined they saw him. Then we have what we call the ghost theory, that if they only saw a ghost or a Christ ghost and thought it was Jesus. But in Luke 24, 39 to 43, 
we read that a spirit does not have flesh and bones, and he doesn't eat, and he doesn't drink. We have the myth theory. It was a wild story handed down by the ancients without truth. But the whole canon of Scripture shows this lie, or this theory, is a lie, and that isn't all. All the evidence shows that he was a real person who lived in history and is documented, and the times in which he lived are so well documented by archaeological findings, you'd have to be about half crazy not to believe the historical facts. We have other theories about the resurrection. We have the theory the disciples came and stole away the body. We know from the Bible they paid the soldiers to spread that lie. Well, let me ask you something. How'd they come and steal a body away with, a, with Roman soldiers guarding a tomb? Did you ever try to steal a dead corpse from a tomb with Roman soldiers and an army of occupation guarding the tomb? Did you ever try that? Try that. Somebody said, well, they came and pulled back the stone and got him and took the body. Aren't you rather stupid? Didn't you read they saw the grave clothes there wrapped about and the head cloth lying by itself? Tell me something. If you were in a hurry to steal a dead body in an army of occupation from armed soldiers, would you take time to take the swaddling bands of the grave clothes and rewrap them in a circle as they were before you unwrapped them when you took the body out? Do you know of any thief that would go into a house and go to the house and take him, uh, oh, take him 15 minutes to unwrap a Christmas present under the tree and seal the present out, and then take 15 more minutes to wrap the thing back up and tie it back up in the empty box when there was an armed guard outside? That's quite a thing you got going there, isn't it? Now, the true explanation is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave bodily as he said he would. Peter says in Acts 2.24, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible he should be holding of it. Now the resurrection body. First of all, it had flesh and bones. Luke 24.39. It was a glorious body. Philippians 3.21. It was an immortal body that never will die. Romans 6.9. It was a spiritual body, 1 Corinthians 15, 44. It had no blood in it, but was glorified flesh and bones, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 40 and 41. This spirit body has the ability to pass through a solid wall, according to John 20, verse 19, and has power to become visible and invisible at will, Luke chapter 24. And this resurrection body, to which the Christian will be conformed, Romans 8, 29, is the body of a sinless, perfect, 33-year-old male without blood. Christ said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. Paul says, The Lord will change our vile body, that it might be fashioned like unto his glorious body. It is so a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body, Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And when the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we read in John 20, verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. This, of course, tells us what the resurrection body will be like. Since the woman came from the man, and since her name was not Eve, but rather Adam, Genesis 5, verse 1 to 3, the woman who is saved will be conformed to Christ's image, a 33-year-old sinless male, 
We read in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that God did predestinate us to be conformed to the image of his Son. John says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God. That includes women Christians, too. It doth not appear what we shall be, but we know when he shall appear we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Then our conformed resurrection body will be conformed to the body of Jesus Christ, that he might be the first of many brethren. And this body will be the body of a 33-year-old sinless male. Hence in heaven they are not married nor given in marriage, but are the angels of God in heaven. And every angel in that Bible is a 33-year-old male. There isn't a sexless angel in either testament, nor is there an angel with wings from Genesis to Revelation. Now, we'll talk about this more when we begin to study angelology and demonology. But angelology and demonology in the Bible show a marked difference than that that you'll find in any textbook written by any fundamentalist in the last 300 years. There's nothing like the Bible to open your eyes, brother. How did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, first of all, by the power of the Father, Acts 2.24. By the power of Christ himself, John 2.19. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. What are the results of the resurrection? Well, first of all, it proves the existence of God. If there is no God, how did Christ rise from the dead? He rose because a living God resurrected him, and if there's any God up there at all, he can raise the dead. If there's any God in heaven, every man and woman and child on this earth will have to stand and give account to him for the life lived on this earth, and the only that could be done is for that dead person to come up from the dead at a future date. And this is why all the Athenian philosophers rejected the physical resurrection. And this is why Plato, Socrates, Anaximander, Anaximenes, Demosthenes, Pythagoras, and all the rest of them rejected a physical resurrection. They didn't want to be held accountable for their proud, egotistical, filthy, immoral lives. And that's why the Bible said, God taketh the wise in their own craftiness, and the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise, that they are vain, and when the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. If there's any God, son, there's a judgment. And if there's any judgment, there has to be a physical resurrection. The resurrection proves the deity of Christ. Paul says Jesus Christ was declared to be, quote, the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. The resurrection means that salvation is an accomplished fact in the past tense. Jesus said that salvation was completed when he died on the cross, and the resurrection confirms this. This means that real salvation is a done proposition, not a do proposition, and the people who are trying to get to hell by works, pretending they're going to heaven, have never been saved. The people who are trying to get to heaven by James 2 and Acts 2 and Hebrews 6 are just as lost as a goose in a horse race. And the real difference between God's salvation and man's salvation is quite simple. When men try to justify themselves, they always do works to justify themselves while rejecting what God did in biblical salvation. You accept what Christ did instead of what you're doing. A Christian doesn't work to get saved. A Christian doesn't work to stay saved. A Christian works because he is saved. 
the resurrection guarantees that everyone shall rise to, the righteous to life eternal, the unrighteous to face an angry judge and be condemned. The resurrection prepares Jesus to fulfill his next promise when he said, I will come again. And finally, the power of his resurrection, Philippians 3.10, is an experience that a Christian can enjoy now. It means living in newness of life that comes to us by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ living his life anew in our bodies, of which Paul says, we have this treasure in an earthen vessel that the power and excellency may not be of us, but of God. And the resurrection is connected with all kinds of things. The second coming of Christ, the proof of Christ's deity, the finishing of salvation, and the power and the life of the Christian to live the life that would be pleasing for him in God's sight. When the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it is always very careful to tell you that that has nothing to do with working to get saved. The next verse says, for it is God that worketh in you. The born-again saved child of God is a earthen vessel, then, in whom dwells the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit coming to represent and glorify the risen Christ, the testify of Christ and glorify of Christ, and to show the Christian things to come, to comfort the Christian, and give him power in the resurrected life. And we'll talk about this more when we discuss under Christology the great subject of the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus Christ in this present dispensation. Now, in concluding our broadcast, may we note these salient points. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest power in this world outside of the power of prayer. And it is the power of prayer that appropriates for the Christian this resurrected life. Hence, the Christian is commanded to be filled with the Spirit and let Christ be formed in him. The resurrection surpasses the power of the atom, hydrogen, cobalt, or uranium bomb. These elements of man have only power to destroy, but the resurrection has the power to give life to the dead. An atheist once died, and to make sure he wouldn't rise again, he said in his will, my body is to be cremated and my ashes taken by plane and scattered in the seven seas. Well, he was a non-scientific fool. A thousand years later in the resurrection, when the trumpet sounds, that body will come together and stand in the presence of Jesus Christ before the great white throne. The God of creation is the God of nuclear fission and the God of atomic power. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ holds all things together by the word of his power, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ made the worlds and gave us the evidence and substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And don't you think for a minute that the God of Jesus Christ and the God of the Bible and the God that gave that revelation is not the God of physics, mathematics, nuclear power, and nuclear fission. Be not deceived. The God that created Adam and became incarnate in Jesus Christ knows more about the genetic code and the mathematical formulas in the genetic code and the ribosomes and the chromosomes and the amino acid and the enzymes in the nucleic protein material than the last 3,000 PhDs that taught your teacher. And all God has to do to resurrect that body is just recompose and reassemble the atoms. No problem. 
Do you think a God that can make every snowflake of 150 billion snowflakes different will have any trouble putting together the body of a God-defying, self-righteous rascal? No problem. The resurrection is the basis on which biblical Christianity stands or falls, and that is why for centuries they've been trying to find the body of Christ, or a piece of the body, or go over to Jerusalem and find a, try to find the bone of some criminal that may have died on the cross in the hope that some dumb nut will think that that bone was a bone from Jesus Christ. The resurrection is the Gibraltar of Christian evidences, it is the Waterloo of infidelity, agnosticism, and atheism, and it all hinges entirely on that doctrine. If Christ rose from the dead, atheism, communism, agnosticism, and infidelity aren't worth the baloney they're made out of or the tripe and chippings it takes to package them. And if Christ didn't come up from the dead, we say born-again Bible-believing people are the biggest liars on the face of this earth. And if Christ didn't come up from the dead, it don't make a difference whether you're a communist, atheist, democrat, Republican, socialist, Protestant, Jew, Taoist, or Buddhist. Every man is his own god, and every god will be eaten by worms. I'll say it again. If Christ didn't come up from the dead, anybody's opinion is just as good as anybody else's. If Christ didn't come up from the dead, any religion is just the same as another, and all men are their own gods with their own standard of authority and their own set of rules. The law of survival of fittest, the law of the jungle, top dog come out and top, and every man be his own god will lie down the dirt, and the maggots will eat your god. That's all there is to it. He either came up from the dead or he didn't. Because Christ did arise, materialism, communism, and atheism will certainly fall. They'll come to their head under the Antichrist and the Ten Federated Kingdom of the Antichrist, and then when Jesus Christ comes back, they'll be destroyed in less than 24 hours. And the entire work of the National Education Association, the CIA, the Council on Foreign Relations, the international bankers, the Illuminati, and the entire work of the United Nations will be destroyed in less than 20 minutes. So much for man's effort to save himself. Today the mightiest conqueror is death, and death strides across the land, digging a trench across the hemispheres and filling it with dead, and death has no respecter of persons. Lenin died, Stalin died, Marx died, Engels died, Darwin died, Ho Chi Minh died, Mao Zedong died. They all die, and they don't come up the third day. The resurrection is a greater power because it breaks the power of the grave. There's nothing that Lenin, Marx, Engels, Darwin, Huxley, Weisskopf, or Mao Zedong ever taught that could get them out of a hole in the ground after they were buried. Today we triumphantly say, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, I hear his voice of cheer, and just the time I need him, he's always near. Victory is ours as we march forward with the conquering Jesus Christ as the head of the church militant. We can't lose, we're on the winning side. We may lose in this life, which is temporary, but not in that which is to come, for though the outward man perish, the inward man is renewed day by day, and our present light affliction worketh a far more exceeding weight of glory for us, while we look on those things that are not seen, 
for the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal, and I reckon the present sufferings of this time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Wherefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. On this broadcast, we've covered the great subject of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in one of our uh, uh, bylines on Christology. On our next uh, subheading in Christology, we'll be studying the ascension of Christ and bring together the verse to deal with this matter in John 14 and John 16, John 6 and 20, Psalm 68, Psalm 110, Acts 1, Luke 24, and many, many other passages. We hope you'll join us at the same time, this uh, next week at the same time on the broadcast of the Theological Seminar of the Air, where we take up a detailed scriptural study, verse by verse, on the great subject, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.